Isaiah 49 is our text this morning. I think there are times in the lives of all of God's people when they feel forsaken, abandoned, when they feel that all of their labors and their efforts have been in vain for nothing. And in that moment, they are greatly perplexed, discouraged. I say I think that's probably true of of almost every one of God's children. It was certainly true for the Lord Jesus himself. It was true of him without any sense of sinfulness in him, but it was true nevertheless. Remember when he stood on the mountain overlooking the city to which he had come, the city where God himself had put his name, and that city had rejected him, and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together, but you would not come. And even when he, when he died, abandoned by his disciples and all who were proclaiming his glory just a week before, even in that moment when God himself seemed to abandon him, he said from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, this text is the first-person testimony of the Lord Jesus, who is the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. We've come to the second of four servant songs, they're called. Extended passages that talk about the servant of Jehovah or Yahweh. And every one of them is um, referenced in the New Testament and related to the Lord Jesus. He is viewed as the one to whom these passages point. And here is the voice of the Lord Jesus then in verse 4. If you look again, just recovering this from last week, we began this chapter. And look at the statement from our Lord, the servant of the Lord in verse 4. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. He obeyed God perfectly, and yet he died forsaken and apparently abandoned by his father. Now, if you're a child of God, perhaps you felt like that at some point, or wondered if perhaps God had totally abandoned you to his chastening. I have talked to more than one person who has wondered aloud whether the Lord had abandoned him to his chastening hand, whether his chastening would just go on and on and on forever. Or perhaps you feel that you've been given over irretrievably to the strong temptations that hound you and the failures of your life to obey the Lord. Or perhaps you feel that God has forsaken you You're tempted to think in your heart of hearts that he's given you up when he is allowed such difficult trials and distress to come into your life. Well, what we have in this text is the Lord answering that kind of discouragement. All right, I'm going to say it again. That's what you have in this text. The Lord himself answering that kind of discouragement. So if that's ever been you, or if that is you now, then this text is part of God's ministry to you this morning. Let's go ahead and read the text, all right? And I'm going to read beginning in verse 1, because it's all really one thing. And uh, I'm going to read the entire chapter. I'll read fairly quickly, beginning in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me From the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. 
And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says... It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nation, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Here's what the Lord says. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful and the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in the day of salvation I have helped you, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither shall scorching heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold those who come from afar, and behold those from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people, and will have compassion on His afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see they all gather and come to you. As I live, declares the Lord God, you shall put them all on as an ornament and shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, speaking to the land. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, and those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of the tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children." I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Amen. This is a passage about the servant of the Lord. And I want to take just a moment right now at the beginning to recover for us 
what this passage says about the identity of this servant. I've already said that the New Testament points to the Lord Jesus as the fulfillment of this text. But what does this text itself say? And I want to point you to two verses, and I hope you remember this from last week. Maybe have them underlined or circled in your Bible, verses 3 and verse 5, because these are key Putting them together is key to understanding who this servant is. Because in verse five, verse 3, excuse me, the servant is identified as who? As Israel. But if you look at verse 5 now, the servant is actually distinguished from the nation. The servant comes to restore that nation to the Lord. So here is a person then who is identified with the nation and yet is distinct from the nation, this is a singular person who embodies or represents the people of God in himself. It is very similar to the way that the word offspring is used in the Bible or the word seed. It is kind of a collective singular, right? And it can imply a whole host of connected descendants. So this term, the servant of the Lord, or the term Israel here, applies to that singular person to whom will be connected all of the people of God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ in prophetic form. Now, what I want you to see is there are uh, these two entities, the singular and the plural, are both sort of intertwined in a series of three laments, and then the corresponding answers to God over the lament of the servant, over the lament of Israel about what they're seeing and experiencing. That's where this passage is going. Let me show you now where it is, and you might want to mark this in your Bible just so it'll always kind of um, lay open before you whenever you come to it in your scripture reading. The first lament is up in verse 4. We've already looked at it. It comes from the mouth of the servant of Jehovah himself. He laments that his labor is in vain. It appears that all of his work is for nothing, even while he affirms his trust in the Lord. Now, the Lord's answer to that lament goes from verses 8 to verse 13. The Lord's answer to the Messiah's discouragement, even to his prayer of lament. Look at verse 8, the way the Lord answers. The Lord says, in a time of favor, I have what? I answered you. Right. So this is the Lord's answer. And all of that answer has implications, not only for the servant of the Lord to whom it's addressed, but to all of those who are united to him, connected to him. That's the first section here. The second one begins with another lament in verse 14. But this is a lament of the city of God, the people of the Messiah. Zion, as it's called. They issue their own lament. And here it is in verse 14. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. How does the Lord respond? He answers that lament in verses 15 through 23. The Lord's answer to them is in these verses. In light of their connection to the Messiah, the Lord answers them. And then there's a third movement, and it begins in verse 24. And there again, you hear the discouragement, the lament of the people of Zion who see themselves as nothing but prey for their enemies. And they say in verse 24, Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? I mean, can, can this real, really happen, this deliverance that you're talking about, in the face of such a mighty adversary? So you might want to mark this down because it may not immediately jump out to you unless you're reading sensitively that verse 24 is actually the speaking or the thinking of Zion, not the words of God. Now, God responds to that lament in verse 24 with verses 25 and 26, which again begin, Thus says the Lord. So the Lord responds. So that's the way this passage breaks down. And uh, I, it is intended by God to be His answer for all of His people, for His Messiah, for His servant, and all who are connected to His servant. It's intended by Him to be His answer for us. In those times of our life when we say, 
Everything is vain. Everything's a mess. God has abandoned me. He's forsaken me. Where is he? Oh, Lord, what are you doing? I don't understand. I don't get it. This is his answer to his people in times just like that. And as such, I think, boy, it's such a needed thing for every single one of us to be able to sustain ourselves in the word of the Lord. Now, we're just going to really look at the very first one, beginning in verse number 8. This is the Lord's answer, again, to the lament of his servant that was articulated back up in verse 4. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity, the servant says. Don't think that, that our Savior was never disheartened. The Bible says in John chapter 1 that he came to his own, but his own people did what? They did not receive him. At the end of Jesus' life, how big was his church? It was pretty small, wasn't it? Here's a, a man who had the full measure of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He had all of the signs and wonders of heaven itself. He had the very word of truth embodied within him. And at the end of the day, even those who were his closest disciples ran. So this is, this is a moment in his life when he is expressing that. And it's prophesied that it would be so, and it certainly was the case. Now, how does the father answer his servant's lament? The answer begins in verse number 8. He answers him by assuring him of a time coming when the situation will be reversed. The situation of apparent failure will be utterly reversed. Notice what the Lord says. In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. And let me just pause to say, don't be confused by the tenses here. This is written in the past tense. I helped you. I answered you. This whole passage is a future prophecy that's couched in past tense language. Remember the servant himself said, I have labored in vain. He wouldn't be born for another 700 years. So this is a prophetic carrying away into the future, looking on something as if it's, as if it's done. And so the Lord says to the anguished lament of his servant in light of all his perfect obedience, the Lord answers him by saying, there's a time coming when I will answer and I will reverse everything that you have seen. There is a time of favor coming, a day of salvation when I will help you. So when was that? Because we're looking back on it now, right? Back on the life of our Lord Jesus. When was that day? When did God turn the Messiah's apparently vain ministry around to bring his favor and his salvation? Well, I want you to see the answer by holding your place here and turning over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let me just give you the background of what's Paul's writing here, and then we'll see the answer in the beginning of chapter 6. But chapter 5, Paul is speaking about the physical suffering for the gospel's sake, that he had a lot of hardship. And those who've read the story of the Apostle Paul, the accounts of his ministry throughout the book of Acts, you can remember a lot of the accounts of the hardship that he faced. He says he was carrying in his body the death of the Lord Jesus. His very body was marked by the uh, wounds of the gospel. But he says that all of that was just a light momentary affliction compared with the eternal glory that was going to be his. He was not looking at the immediate visible world, but the world to come, the eternal life that was his. And in chapter 5, he says that when our present body, our earthly tent is destroyed, we rejoice because we have an eternal one. So all of the sufferings that he suffered for the gospel were like nothing because he knew that God had prepared a heavenly body for him, a resurrection body of glory. And look at verse chapter 5 and verse 16. Let's just pick up there. Chapter 5, verse 16, he says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That is, according to the standards of this present world that's passing away. 
He says, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. <laughs> he, he, re, he, he recognized that Christ is no longer, quote, in the flesh, um, but he has passed on out of this world that's passing away into the new creation, into the heavenly, glorious, eternal creation. That's why he says in the next verse, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Those who are in Christ are already part of the new creation because Christ is exalted in glory. And then he goes on in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, that is, himself and the other apostles, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So God is appealing through Christ and Christ through his witnesses. The Lord is imploring, he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then he makes this wonderful statement that just really encapsulates the gospel in verse 21. For our sake, he made him, that is Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel, isn't it? God made Christ our sin offering so that we might be credited with all of the righteousness of God in Christ. Now that gospel being proclaimed by Christ through his apostles, Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1, we are working together with him. Chapter 6, verse 1, we're working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in what? And that's the very issue that caused Jesus' lament in his earthly ministry, the, the vanity of the reception to the message. But Paul is encouraged. Why is this? Verse 2, because God says this, In a favorable time I listened to you. And remember who the you is? The servant of the Lord. Paul's encouraged in his ministry on behalf of Christ because of this. Because God said, in a favorable time I have listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. That's the passage in Isaiah. But then, by divine revelation, he says this. Look at the end of verse 2. Behold, now is that favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So what Paul is saying is that the divine timetable for fulfilling Isaiah 49 in the time when the Lord hears the Messiah and answers and turns his whole ministry around to bring success in it. The timetable of the fulfillment of that was the post-resurrection preaching of the apostles to all of the nations. And of course, you think about when they began to preach, what happened? God The Lord Jesus, in fact, poured out from heaven his Holy Spirit upon them. And when he did, 3,000 people were converted in a day. We're talking about more people converted in that day than during the entire course of Jesus' earthly ministry. When is that time? Paul says, it's now. It's come. God has heard the prayers of his Son. His son, the man of sorrows, rejected by man, acquainted with grief, abandoned by all, is now on the throne of heaven. God has heard his prayers and God is answering them. This is that acceptable time. And the gospel went out from Jerusalem across the entire region of Judea and up into Samaria and through the apostolic testimony to the uttermost part of the earth. And Paul, writing this letter, is actually writing to people in a Greek city And he is seeing conversions among the Gentiles from many of the nations of the earth. So what is going on in Isaiah 49 is that the Lord, God the Father, is prophetically encouraging his son and servant in the time of his flesh. He is encouraging his servant 
by telling him that there is a day in which he will answer him, in which all of the apparent vanity of his mission will be turned around and there will be great success. And after three and a half years of no response, after three days and three nights in the tomb, God would raise him up to heaven, exalt him to his own right hand, where he would pour out the Spirit and win over the world through the witness of his people. So, this age, the age of the Holy Spirit outpouring, the age of the New Testament church, this is the fulfillment then of Isaiah 49, according to the Apostle. Now let's go back to the text then in Isaiah 49. Go back there and take a look at what the Lord says that he will do in that favorable time, in that day of salvation. What will the Lord do? How will he answer the lament of his servant. He says in the middle of verse 8 that when he brings favor in a day of salvation, he says in the middle of the verse, I will keep you. In other words, I will preserve you. I will uphold you. Even though Christ died forsaken, the Lord says to him, I will hold you. I will keep you. He says to him, and I will give you as a covenant to the people. I will give you as a covenant to the people. A covenant is an arrangement between God and man. And this arrangement would be embodied in Jesus Christ. I will give you as a covenant to the people. And our Lord, you probably know well, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and took a cup. He held up that cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the arrangement by which God forgives sin under the terms of the new covenant. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, would be shed in their place. That covenant would be embodied in his flesh. And In Hebrews chapter 10, The Bible says that Jesus takes away the old covenant and establishes the new covenant by saying this, I have come to do your will, O my God, in the body that you have prepared for me. And he did. In perfect obedience in his human flesh, in his body, he fulfilled the terms of the covenant. And by Jesus' perfect obedience... And by his shed blood and his death on the cross, God has established the ground for a new covenant relationship with him. And here's the way it works, friends. Jesus obeyed in his flesh on behalf of his people. He obeyed like they should have obeyed. And he in his flesh suffered the penalty for the sin that they should have suffered. In him is the covenant. In his body, in his life, and in his death. And the real issue for any of us, if we would be rightly related to God in a saving way, is our connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our union with the Savior by faith. And I want to admonish anyone who is outside of Christ to turn from trusting in yourself in your own opinions, in your own goodness to make your way through the judgment of God and into heaven and depend and rely and trust solely in the Christ, in the servant of the Lord, the perfect, obedient servant of God. In him is the covenant. I will give you, the Lord says, as a covenant to the people. And then God stated his purpose in giving his son as a covenant for the people. Notice that in verse 8. Okay, I'm just trying to follow the contours of this text here. The purpose for the covenant is spelled out in verse 8. I will give you as a covenant, and here's the word, to, to do something for this purpose. To establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages. The purpose for giving Christ in the covenant is to establish 
the land to apportion the desolate heritages. And remember that the people of Judah who read these texts in the years to come would be carried away into captivity, far away from their land. And their tribal inheritances, they would lie desolate for 70 years and more. And God is promising here through this covenant to establish his people in the promised land. This is the promise of the covenant, the purpose of giving Christ in the covenant, to establish God's people in the promised land. Now, how will that be fulfilled? Well, some people believe that it was fulfilled in the decree of King Cyrus, who said to those people in exile to go back into the land of Judah. And there was a a kind of fulfillment in that, a a sort of near-term expression of this. But those people never fully uh, recovered their inheritances in that land. There are other people who believe that this statement is fulfilled, or it began to be fulfilled anyway, in 1948 with the establishment of the modern state of Israel, the giving to that nation a piece of land again. And that gradually the Lord has brought more and more Jews from across the world back to that land. And so the Lord is fulfilling this prophecy even right now and will fulfill it one day, especially in his work in the millennium. But those tribal connections are, for the most part, lost to time. I think really the most important issue in this whole discussion is the issue of hermeneutics. So let me stop just for a moment and just sort of move into teacher mode just a little bit and talk about how we interpret the Bible. That's all hermeneutics means. It's the principles by which we interpret the Scripture. And there are good people who preach the gospel and stand valiantly for truth, who who this is their view, that God has a distinct plan for the nation of Israel that is separate from his plan for the New Testament church. Let me go ahead and put up a slide that just pictures this sort of interpretation of the scripture. There is, um, I think we have it, do we have it? All right, so there is Israel on the left, and uh, one day God will deal again with Israel And so God has a distinct plan for the nation of Israel, separate from his plan for the New Testament church. And so the church is a kind of parenthesis in the plan of God. And one day, the church will be raptured out of the world, and God will again deal with the people of Israel and bring to pass all of these promises. They will be fulfilled in a future millennial kingdom. This is the view that I grew up with, and sometimes it's called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism often characterizes covenant theology, on the other hand, as a kind of replacement theology. And their depiction of covenant theology looks maybe something like this, if we could have the next slide, that in the Old Testament, God dealt with the Jews, but they rejected Christ And so God is done with them, and now God has turned to the Gentiles instead. That he has sort of replaced the Jewish church with the Gentile church. And the accusation is that people who read the Bible this way appropriate promises that actually aren't theirs. They belong to the Jews, not to the church or not to the Gentile church. I I was listening recently to um, a dispensational um, pastor whom I greatly respect, one of the best preachers I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, But he used this illustration. It's like reading someone else's mail, right? The mail is not for you when you read these Old Testament promises to Israel. That's for Israel. It's not for you. So don't get confused about that. But this, I think, is really a caricature of covenant theology. The Bible actually presents, really, a robustly Christocentric hermeneutic, a a hermeneutic or a principle of interpretation of the Bible with Jesus Christ as the center. And let me show you a little 
glimpse of that. And I know this is a little cluttered, but let me walk us through it. The Old Covenant, Israel, the nation, is the typological people of God. And they're connected to Christ physically. The Bible says, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. And they are characterized by the promises that were given to the patriarchs. Romans 15, verse 8. Promises like what? Well, the land of Canaan, right? That was their inheritance. And in that nation, the church was concealed. Where was the church? It was that believing remnant, that Israel within Israel, that true uh, people of God. But the promise that God gave to the nation, he continued to narrow it, the reference of that promise from Abraham down to Isaac, not Ishmael, and to Jacob, not Esau, and down to the tribe of Judah, and then to the line of David, and eventually all the way down to the Virgin Mary. And in the fullness of time, God established the new covenant, Israel, the eschatological people of God, the end-time people of God. And this connection to Christ is not physical, but spiritual. And in the New Covenant Israel, the church is revealed, not concealed, visibly manifest as the confessing, believing church. But at the very center of all of this is Jesus Christ. Christ is the center, he's the focus, he's the aim, he is, in fact, The true Israel. Isn't this what we've seen in the scriptures? That Israel ultimately points not to to this nation, but to a single individual. The one to whom all of the Old Testament promises pointed. Jesus Christ. You want to know, who are these promises for? The answer is, therefore, Christ. Therefore, that Israel, the true Israel. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, All the promises of God find their yes in Him, that is, in Jesus Christ. So ultimately, all of the promises are fulfilled, not in the nation, but in that single individual, that single person. And in Him, then, the promise and the application of that promise is expanded. It moves outward from the Lord Jesus, just like it comes down to the Lord Jesus And its focus, it moves outward from the Lord Jesus in an expanded way so that all who are in Christ Jesus, or as the text says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise that God made. The inheritance then promised to Israel ultimately belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me say it this way. If the land is anyone's, it is his. It certainly does not belong to an unbelieving nation. And if it's Christ's, then it belongs to all those who are united to him, whether Jew or Gentile. They are Abraham's offspring. They are the heirs of the promises that God made by union with what? With the one true heir the one single heir to whom all of the promises were pointing. That's the way I think the Bible fits together. And so this is a really important principle to hold in our minds when we come to passages like this and prophetic passages of Scripture that are dealing on the surface with Israel and really keeping in mind where all of them are driving, where they're pointed, where everything is focused, and then how we relate to those promises in terms of our relationship to the Savior. Now, I want to stop here and also issue a warning to you who are non-Jews, physically, Gentile believers, that we must not boast against the Jews. There is no place for anti-Semitism among the people of God, although sadly it has at times characterized people who identify as Christians. Remember, we are blessed through the Jew, Abraham. And anyone, the Bible says, anyone who is lifted up in pride and unbelief and self-righteousness is cut off from the true vine, that is, from 
the Lord Jesus, the true Israel. And God is certainly able, on the other hand, even determined, as I understand Paul's argument in Romans chapter 11, to do a mighty work among the Jewish people, a work of grace and salvation. And I pray for it. One of my old dead heroes, Robert Murray McShane, spent the last years of his life on mission to Jewish people to win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of years ago, I met a missionary by the name of Baruch Moaz, who uh, is uh, a Reformed minister to the Jewish people and sharing with me a little bit of what God is doing among that. Nation And I say amen to all of that, and let there be more of that. But the land is Christ's. And not just that narrow strip between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. I'm talking about the whole earth. Because just like almost all of the aspects of Israel's existence, the land that they were promised was in fact a shadow of something greater. And that is what? That's the presence of God. Nearness to God. That's what the land pictured. The land pictured heaven. And heaven is wherever God dwells together with man. Wherever God is. And when heaven comes to us, when we go to heaven, however you want to say it, it is when God and man make their dwelling place together. I say again, that's what the land's pointing us to. Here's a couple of passages. Hebrews chapter 4. This is kind of an extended argument, and I won't um, have us turn there, but the writer of Hebrews argues that Joshua did not bring the people into their ultimate inheritance, into the land of rest. Even though, of course, the Bible makes it clear, it's saying that not one word of all God's good promises failed. He fulfilled everything that he promised to them about the land. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, we know that there's something more because David, so many hundreds of years later, said this, that there is a land of rest that is still waiting to be possessed. And then the writer of Hebrews says, that land remains for us to possess in our day, to enter into our heavenly rest. So all of this, the writer of Hebrews says, all of these passages, when you put them together in a kind of biblical theology, it points to the fact that when God promised Israel the land, it, it, had, it had a greater trajectory than just a physical people in a little strip of land by the Mediterranean Sea. It was something more than that. In Hebrews 11, the Bible says that Abraham left the land of Ur at God's command to go and seek a heavenly country. Not merely the physical land of Canaan, but a place to be with God. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says that all believers come by faith into that spiritual Mount Zion and that heavenly Jerusalem. This is why we sing so many songs like this, right? We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion, because that's where all of that land points. It's the inheritance that God's people have in heaven with him in the world that he will dwell in with his people. And ultimately, that promised land is fulfilled in the Savior's possession of the entire globe, the entire earth, in the new heavens and the new earth. Romans chapter 4 and verse number 13 is a wonderful passage to keep in mind. This passage speaks of the essence of that Abrahamic land promise. And here it is. The promise to Abraham and to his offspring was that he should be the heir of the what? Of the world. You know what word that is? That's not the normal word for the land. That's the word cosmos. The whole earth. All of it. That's what the promise was about. Everything in the cosmos under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, made holy like the Garden of Eden or the holiest place of the temple where God himself dwells and the curtain is torn and his people come in and they commune with him forever and ever and it will encompass the entire earth. Did you know that the whole earth will belong to the servant of the Lord? The whole earth 
The new heavens and the new earth are his to apportion out as he will. And that is a real concrete reality that ought to encourage all of God's people. And so, God's purpose then, let's go back to the text here in Isaiah. God's purpose then in giving his son, his servant in the flesh, God's purpose in giving him as a covenant is first of all to establish his people in the land, to bring the servant's people, that spiritual Zion, into a place where God and man can dwell together forever. And secondly, the purpose is, verse 9, the purpose is to say to the prisoners, come out, and to those in darkness, appear, come out into the light, come out. The servant of the Lord will say to people who sat in darkness, who were prisoners, caught up in their own sin, he will say to them, come out. Remember, at the end of the last chapter, in chapter 48, we saw this same command that would come to the exiles in Babylon. Leave Babylon. Get out. Go back into the land. And of course, all of that is pointing to this, that if you would be saved from God's destruction of this present age, His judgment upon the sins of the world, you must get out of the world and get into heavenly Zion. Flee, as Bunyan put it, the city of destruction, and get on pilgrimage to the everlasting heavenly city, that celestial city. But now, how will those poor pilgrims ever make it? Because when you flee the the city of destruction, you're not immediately in the celestial city, right? There's a whole long journey in between. And that's exactly what the Lord addresses here. How will they ever make it through so many dangers and toils and snares? The slew of despond they have to go through and difficulty hill and the valley of humiliation and vanity fair and doubting castle. Right? And so as we're journeying, freed from our sins and not yet to the land of our rest, as we're on pilgrimage here, how do we think we're going to make it? When we're discouraged and we say everything's in vain and God has abandoned me and he's forgotten me and it's really hot out here and there's no water and there's no food and and I'm going to die out here in the wilderness. How does God encourage us? That's exactly what he's addressing right here. And the Lord says, first of all, that he will provide for those pilgrims. Look at verse 9, the end of verse. They shall feed along the ways. So they're on a path, they're on a journey, they're on a pilgrimage out from captivity and back to the land, out of Egypt and into Canaan, and the Lord will feed them along the ways. And on the bare heights shall be their pasture. What is barren, what's empty of pasturage, is where they will find pasture. And they shall not hunger or thirst. I mean, here they are going through the middle of a place where there's no food, and yet they're going to have food. Here they are in the middle of a wilderness and God will feed them. And listen, my friend, God knows how to feed his people in the midst of a spiritual wilderness. God knows how to give water from a rock. God knows how to sustain with a word him who is weary. God provides He knows how to provide for your body and for your soul when you are tempted to say, all is vain, I'm never going to make it. How will I ever go forward? How will I ever reach the promised land? When you're beaten down and you feel like you're abandoned, remember this, the Lord has assured His servant that He will give Him to His people in a way that provides for them when they leave Babylon and make their way back to the promised land. They will not be abandoned. He will provide. And secondly, not only will he provide, but he will protect them. Look in the middle of verse 10. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. Now they might be blown about, but they will not be knocked down. The Lord will shelter them in his glory cloud and they will not be 
burned up by that sun. They will be exposed to great heat, but they will not be scorched or withered, for the Lord will give them shade by day and light by night. And whatever violent storm that you endure or whatever weary, endless drought that you face in the providence of God, in your pilgrim journey, whatever it is, always know this, that the Lord will provide places of shelter along the way. He will. He does that. That's exactly where we are today, right? We're sitting in this room, and sometimes we call this room a sanctuary, or that's what it is. Not that the room itself is anything special, but when we are gathered together in the presence of the Lord Jesus, we are sheltered, we are protected. Under the hearing of his word, he's protecting our souls. He does. He provides places of protection for his people. The wicked gate, interpreter's house, the palace beautiful, the delectable mountains, that country of Beulah. He refreshes and protects, restores his people. Haven't you seen how the Lord has done that in your life, and in your pilgrim journey? How he's protected you physically and spiritually along the way. He has promised this. Do you understand that? This is his answer to people who feel discouraged and disillusioned, who feel like all of their work is for nothing. He says, I will protect them. And then he says, not only will he provide, not only will he protect, but the end of verse 10, he will guide them. He will guide them in the way that he has intentionally prepared for them. The end of verse 10, for he who has pity on them, don't, I love that, don't you? He who has pity on them will lead them. And by the springs of water, he will guide them. Listen, the Lord does not stand by aloof and say, well, make it, just keep going. He takes pity upon his children. And so he leads them from time to time across the way over to these still cool waters where they can be refreshed, over to the spring where they can be restored. The Lord does not leave you to say, hey, make the way the best that you can. He leads, he guides. How does he lead us? He guides us by his word and by his spirit and through his providence. The Lord guides his people and he goes before them and he prepares the way in which he will guide them. Verse 11, and I will make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. In other words, he's going to overcome these big, huge, insurmountable obstacles that get in the way like mountains when you're trying to get somewhere, right? And he will fill in those low places, those ravines where you can't cross. He will fill them up and make raised paths. In other words, he does what the surveyors and the excavation crews and the road builders all do. Before they ever build that road, they go and they blow up parts of the mountain, right? And they build bridges across the ravine. And the Lord himself is saying this, I'm not putting you on this journey toward Canaan and saying, make your own way. I'm going before you, preparing the way. You're going to make it because I'm with you. I'm guiding you. And then I'm going to guide you onto that path that I've prepared for you. Now, listen, if you get off the path, you're going to be in all kinds of hurt. And of course, the pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress found that out too, didn't he? But when you stay on the path, the Lord of that place has prepared it for his people. And he will guide and direct you on that path. And he is committed to blessing in all of your journey in life on the way to heaven. Listen, God is not passively observing your progress. He is active. He's providing. He's protecting. He's guiding in a way that he has prepared. He is committed to the success of the mission of his servant, which is to bring his people safely home. So be not discouraged, be not dismayed. God is at work. This is the encouragement that Jesus Christ himself had in mind. Do you think Jesus Christ ever thought about Isaiah 49 when he was facing what he faced in in his earthly ministry? Absolutely he did. I can guarantee you. 
This was the encouragement from God himself, from the Father, that Jesus, the servant of the Lord, had in mind when it appeared to him on the surface that all of his work was in vain. This was part of that joy that was set before him by which he endured the cross. He read this passage and he knew it was about him and he believed it and embraced it and lived in light of it, even though he faced great discouragement. And one of the things that would be most encouraging is that the work of God through him would be a global work. Look at verse 12. Behold, these, that is the prisoners who've been set free, who've now become pilgrims, these shall come from afar, from the north and from the west, literally from the sea. The sea is on the west of Israel. So far out into the Mediterranean, you go all the way across the lands, they're going to come from all over, from the land of Syene, which nobody knows where that is. Um, I think the older interpreters thought that it was a reference to China, and most modern interpreters don't buy that anymore. They think maybe it's a reference to Egypt. Some people don't know where it is a reference to. The Septuagint, I think, um, talks about the land of the Persians. So, you know, maybe it's sort of providentially obscures because the idea is that the Lord's going to call people from everywhere, from every direction on the planet. There are going to be Chinese pilgrims on the road to the celestial city and Indian pilgrims and Egyptian and French and African and Brazilian and Islander pilgrims, all of them on this journey. And this kind of worldwide glory is what Christ deserves for the perfect obedience. The servant who gave perfect obedience to his father, that's what he deserves. A people from every tribe and nation singing his praises. And such a wonderful redemption calls for a cosmic celebration, and that's what you end with in verse 13. Just look at it one more time. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. I mean, the halls of heaven ring with the shouts and songs of saints and angels for what God is doing for his good and faithful servant. And all of the earth echoes that praise. We do that. We, we literally did that this morning, right? As we sang about the faithful mercies of God, we on earth are echoing the song of praise that's in heaven. And one day the whole earth, even the created order itself, will sing for joy because it will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, I want you to think in closing about this answer, right? Because this is an answer that the Lord God gave to his servant in a moment in the face of discouragement and apparent lack of success and even abandonment by God. Think about how often our Savior went away by himself after preaching to great crowds and then coming to the realization that they were only in it for the bread And he would go away on the top of the mountain and he would commune with his father. And he would pour out his soul. And I'm sure sometimes he said something like this. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. How did the Lord encourage him? He did it just exactly in the way that we've seen here. The Lord said, in my time, I will answer you. In time, I will vindicate you. I will reward you. And how did the Savior respond? He trusted. He said, okay, I'll keep doing what you want me to do. Our Savior did all that flawlessly, perfectly. And for that reason, he deserves the praise and the glory of all of heaven and earth for all eternity. Your salvation and mine is precisely because the Savior trusted the word of his Father in the face of apparent abandonment. All praise to him. And you know, the Lord calls us then to follow that same pattern of faith. That is, to trust and to wait and to walk in the path that he's called for us, even when it seems hard, even when it feels like a wilderness, even when it seems like there's not going to be anything to eat, even when it seems like we're going to die of thirst spiritually, even when our enemies are overrunning us, even when our ministry seems to have no effect, even when it feels like God is 
sort of abandon us to his chastening hand. We're going to be in Babylon forever. Even when it feels like that, to hear the words of God in this text, I mean, to be really be able to go back to Isaiah 49 and to encourage yourself with what the Lord has said and to persevere in light of it, following in the steps of the Savior. Friends, our Lord Jesus Christ is our great Moses and our great Joshua, isn't he? He's gone before us to lead us into the land of rest. He's there. The dwelling place of God is with man in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has gone through the wilderness already. He has gone through the river of death. And he is given to us as our covenant. And by his covenant faithfulness, he has secured the help of God to bring us all the way home. So persevere, brothers. All praise to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give glory to Jesus Christ and we boast in his name. We thank you that you have given the Savior to us as a covenant to secure for us our eternal home and all of the graces that sustain us on the path to that home. Lord, please sustain those who are weakest today, those who are in greatest need, those who are hammered by temptation and weary with trial and suffering. Oh Lord, please help them today through this word, sustain them. Let this be your grace to them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.